0: is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. The last line declared by Norma Desmond, the actress forced into retirement due to the cruel wheel of Hollywood. It's the statement of a woman who was not ready to say goodbye. She was still reeling with the sense of being able to do so much more with her life. It wasn't her choice that she wasn't being hired again. It wasn't her fault that she had to kill her friend, Billy, who threatened to leave her. It wasn't her fault that Cecil B. DeMille gave her hope of a comeback that never was. And we are greeted with her statement set in a fit of delusion, mistaking the police and press for the cameras and crew of a movie set as she slowly walked down her stairway and out the door into the squad car. She was a victim of circumstance, a victim that did terrible things. But she wasn't the only one. Entwined is a podcast about how so much of the world around us is wound or twisted together. This podcast strives to bear unexposed or indiscernible truths using historical and anecdotal sources. I am P.S. McKay, and along with Elliot Gladstone, this is Entwined. Sunset Boulevard was introduced to me at an interesting time in my life. It was shown at my first cinema class, during my first week and my first year of college, and it was shown to a room of fresh-eyed students. Dreamers, really. I walked out of that class perplexed. One day I happened across the professor and asked him why he chose such an ironic subject of the Hollywood machine chewing someone up and turning them into a mad murderer. He was brief, but frank with me in the response. It's because that is the reality that we all face. And with that, I was left alone in the darkness of the quad, watching this groomed man run off to his car, who had to be in his mid-sixties, with frosted-tipped spiked hair, bright white teeth and rumored pectoral implants underneath a shirt that was two sizes too tight. Interesting reality that he chose. But he's not exactly wrong, there is a certain level of reality that we all have to deal with when it comes to the third act of our lives. Maybe the scary part is, we don't exactly know when that act will actually happen. it happens too early, you've missed your life. What else do you have to live for? It can be a heady mess, swirling around in your feelings of your own self-worth and what you can bring to the table. Norma Desmond thought her life was pretty much over by the time Billy finds her. She was an actress who had not been able to live through the transition of the talkies. She was still well off, had plenty of money and a very comfortable life, but it was hollow and meaningless to her if she could not be productive anymore. She slipped into madness because of it. When you think about that character and what she went through, it's no wonder why we see such troubled times with grown child actors. The vast majority of them can't make it into film after they've reached adulthood, so they act out. Think about the crazy antics of Corey Feldman. He pretty much turned his life into a reality show in order to help give himself relevance. Danny Bonaduce of the Partridge family had an interesting life, struggling with addiction but his biggest addiction aside from drugs and alcohol, it was attention. He turned it into a radio career, a boxing match, a reality show, but it was all the same theme. All he wanted was attention. It's almost as if he didn't have the eyes on him, he would cease to exist. And while these are just but two examples, they also hold something else in them. They didn't exactly go away. Their third act had not quite come yet. They found a way to survive and be heard. They found new mediums. Yes, the road was bumpy and will most likely always be bumpy for them. That kind of career attracts a certain personality that needs those bumps. Which brings me to a man named Carl Switzer. You may know him as Alfalfa from the Little Rascal Shorts in the 30s, Their program was in high demand throughout the Depression, affording those children luxuries that they were far too young to understand in a time of such struggle. Carl had a reputation as a bit of a troublemaker. Despite their on-screen chemistry and scripted romance, Darla Hood was often apprehensive around Carl while on set, worried of an impending practical joke at her expense. Now time passed, and as he got older, the roles began to dry up. He had some bit parts in some major movies like It's a Wonderful Life and DeMille's The Ten Commandments, but he was not able to reach the heights of fame like he was as Alfalfa. It was almost more of a liability. When he was a young man in his late 20s, he went on a blind date with Diane Collingwood. She had originally moved to California because she wanted to become an actress. They hit it off pretty well as blind dates can go well enough to run off to Vegas and marry. They shortly thereafter moved back to Diane's home state of Kansas, where her father offered them a large portion of his farm property to tend. Carl, originally from Illinois, was able to adapt well enough, but even as his life was quieting down, there was an itch. An old friend of his who blew through town could tell when he last saw him in 1957. They talked of the old days growing up together, but his friend George could tell when Carl admitted to having put a radio on the tractor that he was still the antsy, gruff, cocky dreamer that he had always been, and farm life wasn't going to satisfy him. George turned out to know his friend rather well. The next year, Carl and Diane divorced. They had one son, and unfortunately his own son's life wasn't strong enough to fade the call of Hollywood. Carl ended up settling in Studio City by North Hollywood. With roles not coming his way, he changed direction and became a well-known hunting guide. He would take the likes of Jimmy Stewart and Roy Rogers regularly on excursions to Chatsworth and Simi Valley. Knowing how those areas are populated now, it's mind-boggling to me that just five and six decades ago, It was rural enough to hunt there. But I digress. Using his hunting reputation, a chance meeting with Moses Stilts led him to agreeing to train a hunting dog for $50. For some perspective, that nowadays equates to about $400. And then Carl fatefully lost the dog, placing a $35 reward for its return. A few days later, a man found the dog and brought it to the Studio City Bar, where Switzer then worked. Switzer paid the man $35 and bought him $15 worth of drinks. Several days later, Switzer and his friend Jack Pyatt, a 37-year-old unit still photographer, decided that Moses Stilts should repay Switzer the reward money for the dog. Shortly before 7 that evening, January 21st of 1959, Switzer and Pyatt went to Rita Corrigan's home in Mission Hills where Stilts was staying. Carl banged on the front door saying, let me in or I'll kick in the door. Once inside, he and Stilts began to argue. Carl said, I want that fifty bucks you owe me now and I mean now. When Stilts refused to hand the money over, the men began to fight. Switzer allegedly struck Stilts with a glass-domed clock, which caused him to bleed from his left eye. Stilts retreated to his bedroom and returned with a 38 caliber revolver. Switzer grabbed the gun, resulting in a gunshot being fired. That struck the ceiling. Switzer forced Stilts into the closet, although Stilts had regained his revolver. Switzer allegedly pulled a knife and screamed, "'I'm going to kill you!' Fearing Switzer was about to attack... Still, shot him. (laughs) Switzer suffered massive internal bleeding and was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. He was buried in Hollywood Forever Cemetery. If you are intrepid enough, you can see the gravestone yourself. And if you do, It'll be impossible for you not to notice the engraved image of a dog under his name. The very animal that set the wheels in motion for his burial. I'm not here to paint Carl in some kind of light, like a saint. He was a rugged personality whose life demonstrated a sense of selfishness. His son never knew his father. But I want to point out that he was cut down in the prime of his life, a life that he was trying to figure out, a life that was also a victim of the Hollywood machine that churns and burns so many nameless souls every year, a life similar to Norma Desmond. How can you reinvent yourself when you may have already peaked? What's your third act? And one more thing, one of Carl's final roles was as a slave in The Ten Commandments. It was DeMille's last film that he ever directed, and it was DeMille who died on January 21st of 1959, the same day as Carl. Even in death, Carl's life was forever overshadowed by Hollywood. Thank you for listening. Please stay tuned to hear what next we have in store. Be sure to visit EntwinedPodcast.com for more information on the episodes you hear. Stay Twined.